Father, now I pray that as we open your word that you would grant us grace, that we would know that this is your word. Again, Father, just astound us with the fact that you've given to us this book and that when we hear it read, we're really hearing you speak. How great it is to be such a people, to have their God so near that he speaks to them. So help us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Nehemiah in chapter 3. Now, I usually don't say much before I read the scripture. I I, I do that. That is, I don't say much before I read the scripture. Uh, Because I want it, I want it to stand alone. I want you to realize that this voice is different than any other voice. All right? It's the word of God. And we we pray that the songs that we sing are, 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 are songs that speak the truth. And we trust that they do. We examine them in that way. And I pray that what I preach is truth. And uh, we examine it in that way. But this we know, without a doubt, is true. But let me just tell you this. I've never read Nehemiah chapter 3 aloud in a company of people before. Uh, you'll see why when I read it. It's long. And it's mostly names of people who are building the wall around Jerusalem. <laughs> and um, it's, it's, it's usually a passage that when you're reading through the Bible in a year, you skip. I know you do. You start it, but then you go, oh, man, I'm not, no, no, no. I won't get anything out of this today. So it's just names of people building. And so like I normally do when I teach through Nehemiah, I normally was going to skip it and just say something in passing about it, but. Come Friday, I was convicted that it's the Bible and I should read it to you and I should ask God to help me find something that's of help. So I think that's happened. I will read it. I will stumble over words, so be gracious to me. But this, I can tell you, is the word of the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, And they built the sheep gate, they consecrated it, and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of uh, Imri, built. The son of Hassaniah built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, uh, Miramoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakos repaired. And next to him, uh, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshzebel, repaired. And next to him, Zaduk, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to him, the uh, Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Uh, Joadah, the son of uh, Pasha, and Meshalam, the son of um, Besadiah, uh, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired uh, Melatiah, the Gibeonites, and Jadon, the um, Maranothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mitzvah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of uh, Heriah, uh, 
goldsmiths repaired next to him. Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, uh, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedaiah, uh, the son of Harumaf, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, uh, Hatush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Uh, Melchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pathamab, Moab, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth. Hakarim repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and it set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth-Zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, as far as the house of the mighty men. And after him, the Levites repaired, uh, Rehum, the son of Benai. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired his district. After him, uh, their brothers repaired, uh, Bava, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the ruler of Mitzvah, repaired to another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Jabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakas, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashhub uh, repaired opposite their house. After him, uh, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of uh, Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, uh, Benui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner of Palai. Palau, the son of, uh, of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king of the court of the guard. After him, uh, Pedaiah, the son of Parosh, uh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to the point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as, as, far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zaduk, the son of Amir, repaired opposite his house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shalamiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalapah, repaired another section. After him, Mushalem, the son of Berakiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchai, 
Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner of the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. There you go. That was the proper pronunciation of all those names. Some of them are in heaven going, wow, I never heard my name said on earth before. So I don't know if they can hear that or not. But there, but there you go. Now remember what's happening. Nehemiah's been called by God to repair the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Um, they've been attacked, these walls, and burned. And what progress was made had ceased. And so the city was in disrepair itself. Now remember, uh, Nehemiah is doing more than just rebuilding walls. Once the walls are rebuilt, then the city can be, uh, have safety and people can rebuild their homes. If you look, well, you don't need to turn to this, but in, in Nehemiah in chapter uh, 7 and verse 4, we just read that the city was wide and large, but the people were, within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. And so the temple had been rebuilt, but, the, but the, since the walls hadn't been rebuilt, the people didn't feel safe enough to rebuild their houses. And so they lived outside or they lived where they felt more safe in other places. And, and, and the ones who lived in Jerusalem were living literally in ruins of houses. They hadn't rebuilt them. And so you get that sense they were vulnerable. They didn't see this as a permanent place. And therefore, they weren't building in the city of Jerusalem the culture of the people of God. They weren't living gathered together, as we've mentioned a few weeks ago, as the church, the sense of of church, the sense of assembly, the sense of God's people called out from the world to be his. They weren't living like that because the walls were down. So if you can only imagine the impact of having these walls rebuilt so that the people could rebuild their houses, rebuild their lives in the presence of God. And you can see church, if you will, being built in the midst of that. Are you with me? And so, so Nehemiah is looking at all of that and saying, in a sense, this is what's uh, really, really happening here. And we've seen Nehemiah. Uh, he gets the word. Remember, he was the cupbearer of the king. And, uh, and by God's providence, he has this trusted place. So he's a slave. He has no power in and of himself, no resources in and of himself. But by the providence of God, he's put in this place where he has the ear and the trust of the king. And so he receives this word. Remember, he prays and fasts and mourns for four months. So we see his heart. We see this great zealousness that he has as this man of God. And when the opportunity presents itself... Before the king and the queen, as we've mentioned, he then is, is, is able to make his request to the king that he be given leave and that the king send him and support him uh, both by way of protection of the army and also uh, financially to rebuild the gates uh, around the city and rebuild the city. So all that we know. Uh, we see too, in some sense, the leadership abilities of, of Nehemiah. Remember I said, I don't think that's the main emphasis of Nehemiah. I I don't think that one would go to Nehemiah and simply lay out leadership principles that we learn there. Um, uh, There are some, we see it, but uh, not every leadership principle is here. And not every one of them may be applicable to us 
Uh, in fact, it's interesting. Just, just so uh, this is just Bible trivia, but but it's fascinating. You know, we often go to the Scripture and say, "Well, tell me exactly what to do." You know, and and so what's fascinating is Ezra and Nehemiah, two books of the Bible, contemporaries in some sense, uh, made a very different decision about how they would relate to the king and his protection. For instance, when Ezra was being sent back by the king, he didn't ask for a military escort. But when Nehemiah was sent back by the king, he did. Which do you do? (laughs) Either. Whatever is wise for the need of the moment. There isn't anything unholy about asking for an escort. There isn't anything holy about asking for an escort. So, so we have to always be careful as we read through these things. Well, that's what Nehemiah did, so that's what I'll do. Now, anytime you read about somebody praying, that's a good thing, right? Anytime you find somebody loving, that's a good thing. Uh, but, but, but just be cautious about the particulars. But we do see that Nehemiah... Uh, was a good leader. I mean, he did all the good leadership kinds of things. I mean, he clearly planned because when the king asked, what do you want? He knew exactly what he wanted. He wasn't fumbling around. So during that four-month period of time of fasting and praying and all of that, he was planning to. So he knew exactly what to ask the king. We knew when he, when he, when he gets there to Jerusalem, he spends a few days, we don't know what he's doing, but the suspicion is, uh, is that he's talking to people in Jerusalem about the situation and he's planning. And then he goes out by himself uh, one night and he looks at everything, both from the inside and the outside, which is a good thing, from the inside, from the people's standpoint, from the outside, from the enemy's standpoint. So he learns all about that. And then clearly he, he, he gives the people uh, some, excuse me while well, I... Get more comfortable, thank you. Uh, but as uh, as he as he talks to the people, he tells them the truth. In in chapter two and verse seventeen, you remember, he says, "You see the trouble we're in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned." And so he he doesn't pretend that there isn't a dire situation, but he gives them hope because he goes on to tell them that uh, of the hand of. My God that has been upon me for good and the words that the king has spoken to me. And so he gives them this hope. And so they pray. Their hands are strengthened. They said, let's, let's build. Now, what I read <laughs> uh, was uh, a sense, you get a sense, that Nehemiah, in his planning with the people, had divided up, you know, how to build this gate. This one built this much, this one built that much, this one built that much. And all that's good, division of labor and so forth and so on. Uh, that that makes, uh, makes good sense to do. And so what do we, what do we learn from, from, from all of this? First, notice, and I assume you did, that there are all kinds of people working on this gate and on this on this, on this uh, fence around Jerusalem, on these walls, all kinds of people. There are priests and there are rulers. Um, there are all kinds of uh, people come from, from uh, all kinds of, of backgrounds, certain family units. Uh, we get this one person named uh, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. I just said that because I can. Um, 
And uh, he repaired opposite his chamber. You get the sense that all he had was a chamber. All he had was a, a place to sleep. And, and yet there were rulers from the surrounding areas that were working too. So you can only imagine just the differences there. There were differences in, in people's uh, occupations, it, it, it seems. There were perfumers and there were goldsmiths. I happen to think that the only mistake Nehemiah made was not to put the perfumers near the dung gate. Uh, that sort of struck me as something he might have wanted to think about ahead of time. But you will notice that we only have one name of one person who repaired the dung gate. And don't you know that everybody else was really pleased and thankful that he was the one who drew that short straw and repaired the dung gate. But, But there are merchants and perfumers, people from all different walks of life. And yet they all joined together. Some were close. They repaired the walls close to where they were living. And others had come from other places around the area to work on these walls. But the point is that all these people came together to do it. They were unified uh, together. They were one people as they did this. Uh, And I say that to say that really if you're reading through this, if you ever get you're called to lead a Bible study in Nehemiah chapter 3. The key expression really is this expression next to them. Or uh, as the ESV has it later in the chapter, uh, after him. It's all the same sense. You get the sense of people shoulder to shoulder, hand to hand to do this work. As if there's sort of no gaps around the walls, next to him, next to him, next to him, next to him. They all know this is our section, this is our section. And they're all doing that, if you will, together. One unified whole. Now, if I could just back up, and not just back up from the pulpit, but but back up uh, from this text and, and, and see redemptive history in kind of a bigger picture. It's, it's fascinating, and uh, certain scholars point this out. It's interesting. That as we read through the Old Testament and get to the New, as we read through the Scripture, what we find is a movement, a progression, where there's this sense early on where it, it seems that the life of ancient Israel revolves around particular people, and it's that person who seems to carry the load. We see that with Abraham early, and then, of, of course, with David, but most especially, I think, with Moses. I mean, Moses is, is always interceding on behalf of the people to God. He's a sense of priest and prophet, you remember. And, uh, and even in a sense where God says, I'm going to leave, Moses intercedes, intercedes for the people and says, please don't. So, so you get this sense that, that, that Moses and then even some of the kings are bearing the whole load of the people or some of the prophets. But, but as, we, as we move on, we see, especially here, increasingly this sense of unity, this sense of oneness, this sense that we're doing all of this, all of this together. And, and that leads... To this sense, too, of, of, of another key word in, in, in the first verse, in uh, chapter 3, uh, middle of the verse, it is they, the priests, consecrated it. It is what they built. They consecrated it. Now, that's the Old Testament word for made it holy. If you have an NIV, I think it's the word dedicated. That's all right, but, but not quite Holy means to set it apart. So dedicate it in that sense. But set it apart 
to be holy unto the Lord. Now, again, what's interesting here as we step back and we look at holiness and the holiness in the presence of God, and and we find that that holiness uh, begins with the people of Israel in the tabernacle and in the temple. The things in the tabernacle, the things in the temple, the pots, the the, the, the garments are, are, are set apart to be holy. And now what we see is that from the people and ultimately then among the people in the presence of God is holiness. Um, the prophet Isaiah chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you may want to turn to that or whatever it is you use to have your Bible on electronically. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. And as Isaiah does, he's speaking from his time but reaching into the future. Verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord. Now, the branch of the Lord is that one who comes from the shoot of Jesse. Uh, the branch of the Lord, the Messiah. We know him, Jesus. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruits of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel, that is the remnant. And he who is left in Zion, that is the place where God dwells, and remains in Jerusalem, will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood stains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, uh, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. These images that we get that are all scattered through the Old Testament of the very presence of God. But the point here is that the people themselves will be holy. There's a sense that it's no longer simply God dwelling in a place, but God dwelling in a people. And they're holy. We, we see it even in this Nehemiah passage, the, the gates around the city are dedicated. This is holy unto the Lord. And inside this place where the people live is the presence of God and his holiness. And there to be holy. Zechariah. I know these are obscure passages, pardon me. But Zechariah in chapter 12. I'm sorry, Zechariah in chapter 14. In verse 20. Again, Zechariah, prophet, has his uh, one hand in the days in which he lives, and yet another hand grasping for that which is to come. It's the posture of the prophets many times. Zechariah 14, verse 20. And on that day, and again, as you read through the prophets, uh, when you read the expression, that day, it's that day, all right? That day which is to come. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. Now, if you're an Old Testament Israelite, that should make you chuckle. 
can make you laugh a little bit. You go, oh, that's kind of funny. On the horses? I mean, come on, they're just horses. And Zachariah goes, well, that's my point. That the day will come, that day, when even the horses will be holy to the Lord. And then he goes on. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah, Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. And again, that should make you chuckle a bit. Because you're thinking, I get the fact that the pots and the bowls in the temple before the altar are holy to the Lord. You know, but I just made a couple of eggs in this, in this pan. You know, and you're telling me that's holy? You go, yes. Because in that day, everything will be holy, right? Verse 21. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall be no longer a traitor or a Canaanite in the house of the Lord uh, of hosts on that day. In other words, everyone in that place, everyone will be holy. Turn to Revelation in chapter 21, verse, I'll tell you when I get there, verse 22, right? Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will, be nation, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. Be, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or, or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, everyone and everything in this place will be holy. It will be the very presence of God. And that's the movement, you see. As we're reading through the, the Old Testament, we're thinking through redemptive history, and we read these words even in Nehemiah, this is holy, you go, oh, yes, all right. That's the sense of it. That's what's to come in that day. And what's fascinating is that when we get into the New Testament, we see the very glory of the Lord in the face of our Lord Jesus. He's come and tabernacled among us, right? Templed among us, John chapter 1. And God has called us to be holy. You know these words. Um, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has chosen us in him before the foundations of the world. Do you know what comes next? (laughs) To be holy and blameless in his sight. Us, (laughs) the people of God, to be holy. That's our destiny. He's chosen us out of the world. There's a sense in which we see in this place in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, that a people is, is being prepared. They're going to live in this city. The, 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 the walls around it consecrated to the Lord. And the hope in the, is that everything in it is reflected in the presence of God in his temple. 
And in that day, everything, all those who live in this holy city, this glorious new earth upon which the Lord dwells, all of us in it are holy. That's our destiny. And we're to, we're to be holy and to live in that holiness even now. Uh, commenting on a passage, this passage in Ephesians at least, uh, is a, a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who um, I've quoted him at length before, a preacher in England in the 20th century, so I can now say in the last century, but uh, in the 1940s through the 1970s at least. And in commenting on this passage in Ephesians, he writes this. He says, we're not chosen with the possibility of holiness, but to the realization of holiness. God has not chosen us before the foundations of the world in order to create for us the possibility of holiness. He has chosen us to holiness. It's what he has purposed for us, not possibility, but realization. God will make you holy because he has chosen you unto holiness. Now we know that this holiness comes to us first and foremost in and through Jesus. The technical language, the theological language is that his righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us. It's counted to us. We're clothed in it, all that biblical language. And so we rest in the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed to us. But because of the spirit who lives within us, he's Working in us, recreating in us, renewing in us the image of God that is the image of Christ. And so he has not only imparted this righteousness to us, but he's working in us all that is pleasing in his sight. He's working that in us even now. Now, the great question, will we reach, you know, perfect holiness, uh, you know, before glory? And let me just say no. Though if you do, tell me, uh, and I'll watch you. (laughs) And I'll find something, I'm sure. But, But no, we get that, we understand that. But that shouldn't inhibit us. That shouldn't stop us from, as... Paul writes in Philippians 2, working out our salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. We're simply working out what he's working in. So Paul would write to the church in Galatia, and he's saying, I'm in birth pangs. You know, it's like like a, like a, like a, a woman giving birth until Christ is formed in you. And so his ministry was that Christ would be formed in them. And he was, he was, he was doing all he could by praying and teaching and living uh, so that Christ would be formed in a holy people unto the Lord. And, 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 and I can't put exact, I can't tell you what Nehemiah knew, what he didn't know in the midst of all of this. But, but he's this, this picture of this holy city. And they worked together to, 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 to build these walls and to, and to build it up. Um, and it, because you see, there's a sense, a great sense 
as, as we read through this passage of, of so many different kinds of people from different places, different walks of life, uh, all working together, you, you wonder, did a perfumer really know how to build a wall? I, I don't know. I would doubt it. It doesn't seem to go like something he or she would just do. A goldsmith, I don't, I don't know. A king, a ruler over an area, if you will. A priest. But they did it. <laughs> they were there. It was the need. They saw it. They loved God and they, they went out and they worked together. You get the sense that in the midst of doing this, that any difference they had among themselves simply, simply faded away. It wasn't important anymore. You get the sense that, that, that the, the priest would, would, would carry water or to people who needed it to, to, he would carry stones if need be. The, the, the ruler would do that as well, except this stuck up the nobles of the Tekoites. They would not stoop to serve the Lord. That's fascinating that it's in there. Other Tekoites did, but they didn't. So I, I don't know what they did with those folks afterwards. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, but, but you get the sense that they were all working together. They were all one in the midst of, uh, in the midst of this, in the midst of this place. And again, not to sort of over-spiritualize this, but again, just a picture of the working of the body of Christ to build up the church. You do know, I know, you know, that when one becomes a believer in Jesus, that, that is that you're a believer in Jesus, becomes your overriding or your bedrock identity. It supersedes Everything else. You may be a Chinese Christian. You may be an African Christian. Uh, you may be a, a, a European Christian. You may be a Brazilian Christian. But when we all come together, what's important is that we're Christians. And, and the fact that we are means that there's a link and a bond among us that's deeper than any other bond. In fact, your dear friend who is an unbeliever, in one real sense, is less close to you than a believer with whom you share nothing else in common. I mean, there's this sense of it. You get the sense that these people around, some, somewhere in the city, somewhere outside of the city, some different walks of life, you know, it, it's not like they, they all knew each other necessarily. But when they came together and they asked the question, why are you here? Well, I'm an Israelite. I'm a follower of Yahweh. I'm rebuilding this wall around Jerusalem. It was like, that's all I need to know. That's it. And they linked together. They were joined as one. And that's what's happened. You know, I read earlier that passage from Ephesians chapter 4, the word, the maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I mentioned that to maintain something means that it's already there. It's already there. We've already been joined together. First Corinthians chapter 13, that we've been baptized the Spirit into, by the Spirit into one body. The work of the Spirit is to join us together. It was the purpose 
one of them, of Christ coming to, to gather for himself his people. In Ephesians and chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. Remember, there's in, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself in Israel and through Israel. And, and so those outside were unable to really know this revelation of God and be joined to him in any significant way without coming into Israel, without being circumcised, without becoming one who would be in this law of Moses. So remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off and have, and have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near, for through him uh, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God and built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're also being built together in a dwelling place uh, for God by the Spirit. I mean, that's the sense of it. We're, We're that close. You remember when Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, what was the end of it? He prayed that, we, his people, would all be one, even as he and the Father were one, to be joined together, side by side, arm in arm, one after the other, one next to the other, building and building one another up. That's what we're to do. And the Holy Spirit has promised to give us gifts to do that. And he says, you know, essentially, if you're loving each other, then trust me. I'll gift you. I'll pour out gifts for the common good. That's 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 put together in the right order, 13 then 12, if you will. If you love each other, that's where he's headed in 12. If you love each other, uh, then you'll see gifts happen so that you may minister one to the other. Because each one of us, you see, is called. Not just the clergy, not just the priests, but everybody, all ministers, all to be out in the midst of life. There's a wonderful passage. We can't, don't have time to turn to it because I have three minutes. Uh, uh, six. But we, um, in, in Acts chapter 8, um, it's just a, it's an interesting passage where uh, some persecution comes in Jerusalem. And so the Christians in Jerusalem and Judea are scattered out. All but the apostles. The apostles stay for, I don't know why. He doesn't tell us why. Why they didn't go. You'd think they'd be the first. They'd be the most persecuted. So perhaps they would be the first. But they stay there and everybody else scatters. And you know what happens when everybody else scatters? The gospel goes forth. Now, it could well be that the apostles did their job. They taught the people who they were in Christ. 
I doubt very seriously that they had any how to share the gospel classes. My suspicion is that they just built the people up, knowing who they were in Jesus. And and then when they were scattered out and people said, why are you here? They go, because I'm a believer in Jesus. And people say, what does that mean? And they told them. And so the gospel went everywhere without the apostles, if you will, doing it. And that's the sense, you see, that every one of us is to be out there. Being a Christian. Being a follower of Jesus. And as Peter says, if anybody asks you about your hope, boom. Be ready to tell them. Right? Yeah, how-to classes are wonderful and all of that. But I've found I. When I get to do it, I forget the order that I learned in the class. And I forget, oh, rats, I knew that answer. You know, no, I don't. Uh, and I end up just telling about Jesus. Uh, as I know him uh, as the Lord and the one who has saved me. And so it's, it's that real sense, to bumble through it, if you will. But to, as the text in Acts chapter 8 says, that they went out gospeling. Our dear elder Scott Rask has taught a number of classes on gospeling. How in the midst of your life to gospel. To declare that which is true about God. And so you get this sense that we're together. We get this sense that God is making us holy. We get this sense that a day will come when we'll be holy, everyone in his presence on the new earth. And we get the sense that now we're to be together building up the church with this picture in our mind, side by side, our key identity. It doesn't matter if the person beside us has the same level of education as we have, more or less. It doesn't, care, it doesn't matter if the person besides, beside us has as much money as we have, more or less. It doesn't matter if the person beside us um, is as is, is, is pretty as we are, <laughs> more or less. It doesn't matter if the person beside us speaks the same language as we do. Uh, it doesn't matter what that it just matters that we're believers in Jesus and we come round each other to build one another up and we see that you see all the time we see it all the time we only had eyes to see on Sunday mornings we, we see it now the primary reason why we gather on Sunday morning first and foremost please understand me when I say that isn't to meet each other's needs but to worship God together I mean, that's the primary thing we do. In fact, people who come to us often say, wow, you're really serious about this (laughs) after a Sunday. Yeah, we're really serious about this. So it's participatory. You have to say a lot of things. You have to pray a lot of things. Uh, I don't do it for you. Uh, You have to read a lot of things, sing a lot of things. Uh, So you're in this worship, right? Now, in the midst of that, we trust that God will be meeting needs because as we, as we look around at each other and we realize the, the places from which we come. But all that matters, all that matters is that Jesus is Lord to each one of us. And here we are together. And then in various ways, side by side, as we leave this place, it could well be, you know, it could well be just as you're leaving this place, saying hello to someone. I mean, if, if, you, if, you, if you, in a loving way, say hello, have in the back of your mind, the Holy Spirit is giving a gift. I, I love this. I, I'm doing this in love. And so trust that that hello, that handshake, that hug, that, that wave across the room, that whatever it is, just think the Holy Spirit is giving a gift to that person Right now. A great thought. 
And then even more significant, I suppose, or at least more action than that, actually a conversation, actually an introduction. This is who I am. Welcome. It's good to see you. Or, or just a, a reacquaintance of, of your friendship from last Sunday to this, perhaps you've even seen each other. And just to, just to encounter one another and, and, and trust that in the midst of that love, that God is giving a gift by his Holy Spirit, whatever that is. And then as needs are seen and, and you are there by the providence of God and, and you see them act and trust that, that God will gift in such a way that his love would be expressed and people would be blessed. We sang earlier uh, this wonderful expression that I hadn't seen before until I sang that song, that we're to prefer one another. Isn't it a wonderful little line? I know who wrote it. Oh, look. Prefer one another. Parentheses. Over oneself. Right? That's the implied. Oh, to do that. And realize that when we do that, God will give gifts. And people will be blessed as we mourn with those who mourn. As we rejoice with those who rejoice. As we give to those in need. As we share with those who don't know. All those things you see. And we see it in action as people teach our kids on Sunday mornings. We see it in action during our missions trips. That's why it's so important to go to reports of missions trips. Because what you learn when you come and you hear this, you see how the body of Christ is building one another up. You see how it is that one person is serving the needs of another. When, when Thomas was sharing about the recent Costa Rica trip, he was talking about the fact that there were quiet ones on Sunday who were vocal on the trip. And vocal ones on Sunday who were carrying drinks of water for those. And you go, wow. It's building one another up. Come during the week of VBS. If, if you're not working VBS, which 80% of you will be. But if you're not working VBS, and even if you are, walk around and just see it. And you go, this is Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. I mean, this is what's happening here. You'll look at people and you go, I don't think those two would go together, but they're teaching that class. Wow. How'd that happen? Right? I don't think those two kids would actually be getting along together. I mean, after all, but they are. And you just, you just, just see it in the midst of all of that. And what's great, of course, is that Nehemiah and all these people rebuilt the walls in like 52 days, which was a miracle. But it's no less the miracle of what happens here all the time and what happens in the midst of the body of Christ as we build one another up. Hmm. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me, for us, that we would indeed um, realize that here we are next to one another, side by side. I pray that when we look at each other, all that matters is that Jesus is our Lord, the one who has saved us. And I pray then that we can share life with each other, perhaps in, and most assuredly in ways that would never happen in the world. The poor with the rich, the educated with the not, the socially adept with those who bumble, those who are of high class, if you will, 
and those not so much. Those who have been hurt deeply in their lives and those who have perhaps not. But yet again, our key identity is Jesus. Glue us together, Father, as your people. Make us holy. Father, I'm thinking on this day of, 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 of high school graduates, and it excites me. Uh, and so those among us, those high school seniors graduating, Father, be with them um, and bless them in what is to come in their lives. May they know they're joined with the body of Christ and work in them your holiness. Consecrate them. Father, I think two of those in particular needs that you'd bless them. Help us to help them. Father, we think of those who don't know you. We ask that you'd use us, scatter us, that we may gospel all over the place. Father, make us a church. In Jesus' name.